Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dewhop. Dewhop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, wishing everyone a Merry Christmas. Santa takes to the sky in less than two weeks, and we hope that the aviation infrastructure is ready for him and for all the millions of other holiday flyers. And a happy Hanukkah to you, Scott McCartney. Thanks, Ben. I was afraid for a minute you were going to announce a new aviation merger, like DHL had a deal to acquire Santa because two small cargo delivery operators alone can no longer compete against the big three of UPS, FedEx, and Amazon Air. The cost of fueling reindeer has gone way up. Labor costs are higher for Santa's elves. Santa can't compete with Amazon's low delivery costs in many markets. Ironically, he doesn't have the girth. And the once-a-year model just doesn't work in a world where kids need instant and constant gratification. In a rare show of bipartisan support, Republicans and Democrats have backed a Justice Department lawsuit to block the DHL-Santa merger to save Christmas. United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby weighed in saying that Santa's business model was doomed. American announced it was pulling out of the North Pole and adding more flights to Cancun. And Southwest wants Santa's landing slots in New York and Boston. And Delta said it would take advantage of the situation by building a new terminal at the North Pole and offering free Wi-Fi on Santa's sleigh. Santa, it turns out, who knew? He's a SkyMiles customer. But now we learn that a court ruling may not come until next year, and that has led to panic buying at the Walmart toy department. Compared to that, Ben, the Alaska-Hawaiian merger looks pretty tame. All funny, Scott. And it does look like it is pretty tame, but it is pretty important. And I know you've looked at the numbers and have some thoughts on it. The industry is going through a fascinating time. I don't think it's the end of Santa, but I do think smaller airlines do face many of the same competitive and cost pressures, and they need more sleighs and reindeer to compete with the bigger airlines. (laughs) Well said. Ben, last week I noted that Hawaiian has about 24% of the seats this year between mainland U.S. and Hawaii, and Alaska has 15%. So together they'd have just below 40%. Very strong, but not necessarily dominant. The key to the market share numbers, I think, is the 15.3% Southwest has captured since starting flying to Hawaii in 2019. 
Alaska and Hawaiian are feeling that customer shift, and Hawaiian has been burned by Southwest offering intra-island flights as well, which I understand Southwest really didn't want to do, but it was a condition that the state of Hawaii set for getting gates at Honolulu. The best way to describe the inter-island market is that there is enough traffic for one and a half airlines. You get to two, remember Aloha and Hawaiian back in the day, and it just doesn't work long term. So the merger can easily be seen as a response to the Southwest threat to both carriers. They both need to broaden their network in profitable ways. Let's dig deeper into the numbers, revenue and earnings for the companies. After all, that's what matters most. By revenue, Hawaiian is pretty small, half the revenue of Spirit, for example. Historically, it's been pretty profitable until Southwest showed up. Last year was a horrible one for Hawaiian, and this year likely worse with the impact of the Maui wildfires. In 2022, Hawaiian had the worst net margin of the eight biggest airlines that report financial results. Hawaiian's margin was negative 9.1%. The second worst was Spirit at negative 2.9%. So hint to listeners, those are the two getting acquired. Oh, on average last year, U.S. airlines earned 1%. They got to keep just 1% of the revenue they took in. Just with that, you can see why the two airlines trying to sell themselves to others are the two with the worst financial results last year and likely this year too. Pre-pandemic, Hawaiian had the third highest margin among publicly traded big U.S. airlines. By the way, I've left Frontier out of this analysis because it went public in 2021 and we don't have five years of history on Frontier. Southwest had the best margin in 2019 at 10.7% among the eight airlines that I studied. Delta was number two at 9.5% and Hawaiian number three with a healthy net margin of 8.1%. So the conclusion, Hawaiian is an attractive franchise that has had losses the last three and likely four years. So what changed? The pandemic had enormous impact on Hawaiian. The island shut down, remember, and resumed tourism slowly. The impact continues because Japanese tourism has been slow to rebound internationally. And yes, the devastating, horrible Maui wildfires were a terrible kick to Hawaiians' business, like so many dependent on tourism on Maui. But the third gut punch is clearly the Southwest entry in 2019. Southwest is now the number two airline at Honolulu International based on the number of routes flown. Southwest has 550 weekly flights at HNL, and 395 of those flights go to and from other Hawaiian islands, hitting Hawaiian airlines right in the breadbasket. And by the way, next week we'll have Andrew Watterson, Southwest Chief Operating Officer, on the show to talk not only about operations, but also about consolidation and the competitive landscape from Southwest's perspective. It should be a timely and fascinating conversation. So back to Hawaiian. Hawaiian has a lot more to offer Alaska. It has wide-body planes and routes throughout the Pacific. Some of that long-range wide-body service could originate from Seattle rather than Honolulu, helping with Alaska's battle against Delta in the Pacific Northwest. 
As I mentioned last week, I think the loyalty program is the real key to this deal. Alaska said this week it will operate two brands, but put them together in one loyalty program, much as Marriott combines dozens of brands under its Bonvoy loyalty program. For West Coast travelers, a co-branded credit card with rewards on Alaska and Hawaii may be a very attractive offer, especially if Alaska makes sure its offers are more attractive than rewards at the big guys. These two airlines are mileage-based, for example, not revenue-based, so they can cut out a big advantage. Alaska can also offer rewards through One World. In short, the credit card could be very compelling for West Coast travelers, and as we've noted many times before, much of airline profits these days are rooted in credit card deals and loyalty programs. There could be some very enticing incentives here for West Coast travelers. That brings me to my final merger thought of the day, Ben. What we are seeing is a West Coast response to the power of the big four and an East Coast response with JetBlue and Spirit. Yes, JetBlue wants to acquire Spirit in part because it will have a much larger presence in the middle of the country, but both JetBlue and Spirit are largely East Coast carriers. Alaska and Hawaiian are largely West Coast carriers. The response to the power of the big four is let's get stronger regionally. We can't compete with them nationally or internationally, but maybe we can find robust markets in our half of the country. Three airlines had net losses last year among the eight I studied. Hawaiian had the worst margin, followed by JetBlue and then Spirit. It's easy to see the impact the big four is having on smaller airline profits. The big guys are making money, sometimes lots of money. The smaller guys are now losing money or struggling to make small profits. We can wring our hands all day saying, oh gosh, if we lose that airline, we'll have to pay higher fares. There won't be as much competition, but no company can keep operating independently if it can't earn money. Looking at fares is magical thinking. Looking at earnings is reality. The reality is these companies are having a very difficult time competing and they can't keep selling tickets at a loss. Economics 101, right, Professor Ben? It's not the loss of low fares that should drive merger discussion. It's the loss of earnings that matters most and the overall loss of competition that will inevitably come from too many years of losing money. The only thing we know for sure from airline history is that if an airline can't earn money, it will eventually go away. Scott, I thought you were a journalist, not <laughs> an equity analyst. <laughs> <laughs> That was a great analysis, and it covers things exactly right. You know, John Desberg, the one-time Northwest CEO, said the quickest way to stop losing money is to stop doing things that lose money. So you're right that an airline that's losing money, the right thing for them to do is pull back on services that are not working. Mm -hmm. And that's not what Congress wants to hear. Yeah. It's frustrating to hear. Oh, my gosh. All, all the attention is, will fares go higher? Well, if you're losing money, fares better go higher because you just can't keep 
paying people to get on your airplane. Well, that's right. And even the low-cost airlines or the low-price airlines, they're not scared of high fares. They just know people won't pay them as much because they don't offer as much. Don't you think McDonald's would sell a hamburger for 10 bucks if people would pay that? Sure. So Spirit doesn't charge low fares because it's this good guy. It charges the highest fare it can get in the market. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And the market has really changed. Interestingly, Ben, we had final arguments last week in the JetBlue Spirit merger trial in Boston, and it ended with U.S. District Judge William Young telling a JetBlue lawyer that he expected airline fares would rise if no frills, ultra low cost spirit no longer was around to, quote, this was the judge's quote, undercut everyone else, quote, and drive down prices. I'd point out to the judge that Spirit has lost money the past three years and will lose money again this year, undercutting everyone else. The judge also said he was having trouble with a lot of the Justice Department's argument, too. And he raised the prospect of divestitures by JetBlue to satisfy regulators' concerns. JetBlue has already offered to give up gates it would acquire from Spirit in Boston, New York, Newark, and Fort Lauderdale, plus spirit slots at LaGuardia. A ruling is expected probably sometime early next year. Well, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. We want to thank Doohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Doohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit duhop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. And we want to thank Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technologies. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they're committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. Promotional consideration provided by the Archive.net. Celebrating 20 years with a fresh new look and over 60,000 items of AvGeek goodness. It's the hub of air transport history, and you're welcome aboard. The Archive.net. Well, Ben, this week our mailbag was a lot like Santa's. 
a lot of good stuff in it, a lot of, lot of requests from listeners. So in the mailbag this week, let's start with Nick from Denver, who says, hello, guys, longtime listener. Really enjoy and look forward to every episode. Just had a question since in episode 214, you interviewed the mastermind behind LaGuardia's much-needed update. I've been flying as a pilot almost weekly to DCA, and I'm very surprised to see how old, rusty, and tight DCA is. Kind of shameful for our nation's capital airport, to be honest. Do you know if there are plans similar to what happened in LaGuardia to happen at DCA? I cannot believe that is our nation's airport. I've flown to small towns in Wyoming or Montana where their local airports would put DCA to shame. Just curious. Thanks, Nick. I suspect you are flying into Terminal 1, which is atrocious. For Southwest, the old circular terminal has, I believe, the most heavily utilized gates in all of Southwest's system. They pack people in there like nowhere else because of the shortage of gates and the demand for service. The concessions are in a narrow neck of a walkway. It may be historic and nostalgic, but as you say, these days it's shameful. The good news is there is a plan in the works to replace Terminal 1, but it's a ways off from starting construction. I find the much larger Terminal 2 to be generally very nice with high ceilings and lots of glass. Ben, that's hometown for you. What's your assessment of DCA these days? I agree. Terminal 1 needs a massive refresh. But I'll point out that during the pandemic, the airport already fixed its biggest problem, which was known as Gate 35X, the one gate that handled all the regional jet traffic. Mm-hmm. And it opened a very nice new Terminal E that handles all that. So EMWA, the group that runs DCA, like the Port Authority runs the New York airports, thinks about what its airports need. And they've made the non-Terminal 1 part of the airport quite nice for travelers and I think operators also. But Terminal 1 is old. It works, but it's crowded. It also merges people going in and out in the same places. So there's lots of reasons to fix that. But it is quite historic and there's not a lot of physical room, so it's going to be a challenge. So I'm sure it's multiple years away. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, <laughs> historic's interesting when you when you get older. I remember fondly flying uh, out of Terminal One when I was in college, go to Washington for for different things, and uh, and and go in and out of Terminal One. And when you pull up to it, and it looks exactly the same as it did then, um, that's kind of fun for about 30 seconds. And and then you think, well, wait a minute. Um, There are lots of things in my life that have changed since college. Maybe this airport terminal should have changed, too. 
Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting about LaGuardia that we, we haven't talked about and the, and the, uh, the central terminal there um, is the, the public-private partnership. So there's private money in that and private operation of the terminal, um, some private oversight of the construction as well as the Port Authority, uh, but the financing of it, selling bonds from a private company, and the private company gets a long-term lease to operate the terminal. That public-private partnership has worked very well for LaGuardia and I think really can be a model uh, for future airport construction. Now, I know Denver tried a public-private partnership that did not work so well. Um, so it's an, it's an interesting thing to manage, um, but it can speed things up because you bring private money into the equation. You don't have to wait for all the public appropriations necessarily. Um, that may be something that um, really could help, not just ECA, uh, but all over. And honestly, I think public-private partnerships is a great model for the FAA uh, for uh, you know air traffic control uh, modernization. Um, you know, let a private company take some of the risk, uh, get rewarded with a long-term contract, um, bring the faster funding and better management, long-term planning, um, technology development, things like that. Bring that to the equation um, because it can work better than government. Good idea, Scott. I have one more funny story. My niece, who lives in Texas, hasn't flown that much, but she's come to visit in D.C. a few times, and she usually flies southwest, so comes in and leaves from Terminal 1. Last time, she came in on American and came in in Terminal C, and she was very confused. And she said to me, what's this deal about having arrivals and departures on different levels? <laughs> <laughs> it certainly can be confusing. She she really she entered in in one era and left in another. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, Ben, our friend Scott Merowitz responded to Joe Kernan's frigging Amtrak comment by saying, "Quote: I was listening to your great discussion about deregulation and the comment. Well, what's the other option? Amtrak." Scott says. I'm a giant aviation geek. I work in the travel industry and always pick the middle seat. But I have to say, for trips between Manhattan and downtown Washington, D.C., you can't beat the train. Flying might be 30 minutes faster or so on a good day, but with air traffic control delays in both cities, that often isn't the case. I board an Amtrak train 10 minutes ahead of departure, open my laptop, and work the entire way. While I love the joys of flying, this is one route where Amtrak wins. And maybe with real improvements, we can have a great short-haul network with trains and amazing flights for those longer trips. And I would say, keep dreaming, Scott. It is interesting that this same week, President Biden went to Las Vegas to announce $3 billion in funding for a high-speed rail project linking Los Angeles and Vegas. Maybe some decade we'll get to two routes where rail wins. Scott, I think that's right. 
And I think people in the Northeast sort of see the train as a reasonable option mm-hmm. among Washington, Philly, and New York. So they just assume it can work in other places, but it can't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've seen this in Texas from time to time uh, with high-speed rail efforts to uh, replace the old Southwest Triangle, the Dallas-Houston-Austin-San uh, Antonio Triangle. But uh, the money, the real estate, it, it, it just has a really tough time. Um, and we have invested huge amounts in airports uh, and other infrastructure. Um, you know, in Europe, there's a great rail network. Uh, and yes, Amtrak can, can get you from Boston to New York uh, or from New York to Washington. Uh, it's it's uh, a whole lot more trying if you're going from Boston to Washington. But I think the, the reality is um, in the U.S., airports is where we've, we've put our money and, and where we're going to live. Well, I think that's right. And if the train really was integrated, it would stop in Newark Airport mm-hmm. on the way to New York yeah. and in LaGuardia yeah. the, or have a train go out there. You yeah. know, I didn't realize this till I worked at U.S. Airways, but Scott's right, Scott Mayerwitz about the train in the east when you schedule the Philadelphia hub, which is now Americans, but used to be U.S. Airways. A big challenge is that New York and Washington, two big cities, don't naturally feed the air hub because those markets are train markets. Mm. Now think of Detroit or Chicago or Atlanta with no New York or Washington service. Mm-hmm. Philly's a tough nut to crack because of the train. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Okay, one more question, Ben, for this week. And this one's really fascinating. Daniel from Fort Lauderdale magically pulled strings and writes, Scott and Ben, congratulations. You've just won the Powerball and Mega Millions and have received hundreds of millions of dollars, but on one condition. With that money, you must create and operate your own domestic airline that can travel internationally if you desire. As co-CEOs, what type of airline will you run? Premium, low cost, ultra low cost, or an airline that tries to fit into multiple categories? Do you go point to point or hub and spoke? Where are you basing your operations? What routes would you look to fly? How can you create an advantage over the current market? Do you have any current airlines that would be your inspiration? Please feel free to add any other questions that I might have missed. Love the show. It's the first thing I listen to every Wednesday morning. That's a great question, Daniel, and thank you for those hundreds of millions of dollars. My first thought is I'd look at the winnings rules carefully and see if I can use the money to buy an existing airline in the stock market. Airline prices are really cheap now. 
Frontier Airlines was about a $20 stock when it went public in 2021, and now it's below $5 a share. I remember Boone Pickens becoming a corporate raider because he realized it was cheaper to drill for oil on Wall Street and buy oil companies than it was to dig new holes in the ground. So I'd start on Wall Street, maybe put Frontier and Allegiant together in a big ultra-low-cost carrier. If I need to start from scratch, I'd repeat the JetBlue story of 24 years ago. David Nealman's vision was good service at a fair price, better service than you get on the nasty big guys. I think that formula still works today. I think you need to offer a low fare product in the back of the airplane and a better product for the growing population that will pay more. I think the pain of cramped seating can be overcome with free seat back entertainment and decent snacks or food. Emirates shows us that. You know, Emirates coach product is really cramped, but people think it's luxurious because they ply you with good food and entertainment and reputation. And I'd focus my airline on growing cities that aren't yet fortress hubs. Austin, Texas, Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, Sacramento, California, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Tampa, Florida. The days of McDonald's and Burger King are behind us. Chick-fil-A, Jersey Mike's, Chipotle, those are the fastest growing fast food chains these days. I think people are willing to pay for better quality if they really get better quality. But with airlines, you still have to offer that lowest price seat too. And you, Ben, do you remain an LCC guy? You know, I think all airlines need to think like LCCs in a lot of what they do. You can be an LCC and offer a mid-range premium product. You just have to deliver it at a lower cost point. So I like your idea of a JetBlue-styled airline. But one difference I'd have from you, Scott, and thanks so much for this question, is I don't think you can focus it only in middle-sized cities like Austin, Raleigh, and Pittsburgh. Mm. The reality is people in Pittsburgh want to go to New York and Chicago in addition to Florida. So I think you'd have to carve out some ability to serve big OA hubs on a destination basis and then focus on serving the mid-sized city with nonstop service where they have to connect on the big guys. Yeah, I see that. Um, And since we've got hundreds of millions of dollars to spend, maybe we can have a focus city, Austin, Sacramento, Tampa, or something like that, start there with flights to Chicago and New York from those cities. And Daniel, I know this is not in the spirit of your question, but there's some chance I might think about this and say, keep the money. (laughs) Buy bonds. (laughs) 
There you go. <laughs> Even if you have hundreds of millions of dollars, you, you could you could have Shohei Otani, but that's it. <laughs> and you'd be shocked yeah. how fast an airline can burn through that. Yes. <laughs> Excellent point. <laughs> well, that's it for another episode of Airlines Confidential. We'll be back next week with much more. Have a great week, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.